Earlier in November, Thomson Reuters held the largest tax and accounting virtual event of the year, with 7,000 of our peers at the annual Synergy Conference. One of the most critical themes coming out of that event is how cloud accounting has catapulted to the front of our profession in 2020. No longer is cloud accounting just a thing for early adopters or the tech forward. In 2020, all firms have had to embrace cloud accounting in some way. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Thomson Reuters, later in the episode. I can't even believe this is right. I feel like the zeros are missing here. The IRS audited only 140 partnership returns of the more than 4 million returns filed in 2018. Is that is that insane? Now, what about S-corporations? They only audited 397 returns. So that's 0.01% of all filed in 2018. And that's according to the IRS agency data. This is nuts. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClockShark. Now more than ever, your clients with teams in the field are looking to reduce contact and automate their manual paperwork processes. The team at ClockShark has been busy scrambling to keep up with demand by helping accountants move clients from frustrating paper timesheets to their much-loved mobile time tracking app. Even with this increased demand, ClockShark continues to provide fast and delightful support. They're actively working with accountants and bookkeepers to implement product feedback and improvements to their already robust app that includes features like crew tracking, scheduling, overtime notifications, routes, geofencing, locations, job costing, budgeting, and reporting. To try the timesheet app that's taken over the title for best customer support, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash clockchart. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-O-C-K-S-H-A-R-K. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is a top-rated payroll app that is the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees. OnPay brings everything together in the cloud and can handle all the complicated stuff like agricultural payrolls, Form 943, multi-state, and H-2A visas. OnPay even makes it easy to switch from other payroll services by doing all the data entry for each client account that you set up. Right now, Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get three free months of OnPay payroll services. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash onpay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, we're almost locked down again. <laughs> well, you're in Tucson, so I think they're they're a little more trigger happy over there, down there, closer to the border. I don't know. I, I, I'm simple. I'm not asking for a lot. I just want to go and sit at Starbucks and work on a Friday for like three or four hours. It's just, I, I can't work in the house, right? I just need to get out sometimes. And then I go to Starbucks yesterday. All the tables are shut down. All the tables, the outside tables are gone. Almost like somebody stole them. Like they're just gone. <laughs> they're, they're not even roped off. And that's it. I had to just go through the drive through I got my coffee and came back and worked. And uh, I'm just, I don't know if I'm ready for another lockdown again. Well... Schools are still open in Scottsdale. I'm very hopeful. We have a superintendent who is pro science and data, and there is zero evidence that COVID is spreading in our schools. Like we haven't had a case that we can identify where it's a student giving it to a student. That's what I'm hearing. So the the thing is, like, even if the community spread is high, even if it's very prevalent in the community, what's the point in closing the schools if it's not spreading there? That's that's the scientific way to approach this, right? So, like, that's why it's crazy to me that New York City closed its schools. What are the essential workers going to do? 
they've got to send their kids to school. <laughs> they can't work. Yeah. And I think even going back to early on in the pandemic in New York City, I think I remember we may have talked about on the show that they set up emergency daycare centers just for the essential workers. Right. And none of the kids were getting sick in the emergency daycare centers. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's like definitely no proof that anything's happening in the um, elementary schools. I also think about the data, you know, that there's a big pris- uh, breakout in the prison here in Pima County. And nobody reports, like nobody segregates the numbers. So the numbers just get all like lumped together and then everybody gets more scared, right? Right. And I think right. I even saw this week there was a survey in the UK. And whatever the the number of people that have truly been infected in the UK is X, let's just say it's 50,000. Everybody when they're when the media when they get surveyed because their the media has really blown this up is people estimate it's 10x higher than it really is. Wow. Yeah. So whatever our numbers are, people in their brains when they're surveyed about it later think it's 10x higher. Or they think that it's not real at all, and it's fake news. There's there's no happy medium. It's the Uh, other direction as well. Well, as much as I would love to talk about this, we're not a podcast about COVID and coronavirus. So let's let's talk about the impact on accounting. Let's get to the accounting news, and of course, there's tons of it relating to the economy right now and the pandemic. I've got some stories about PPP, Paycheck Protection Program, and those loan necessity questionnaires. I've got some stuff about remote work and what are employees getting reimbursed for when they work remotely. A lot of people working remotely, obviously, we want to get reimbursed for some of our expenses. Maybe this will help you argue for that new sweet office chair. Uh, (laughs) And marketing. Marketing in a world in which you cannot go to networking events. How do you get clients as a firm? What's the best way to retool your approach to business development. And uh, as a marketer myself, or an accountant who has made the switch into marketing over the last few years, I have some uh, of my own feedback on that and some insights. So those are some of my top stories. Obviously, we got the app news and uh, oh, IRS news as well. Like I've, I've kind of been saving up a bunch of IRS news. Yeah, I feel like I saw IRS in the AICPA and tons of articles together all, and PPP, right? It's yeah. all related to pandemic relief and everybody has opinions and people are writing letters and open letters and communications. And it's just a lot of chaos. And I don't know, maybe you can help me make sense of it more because <laughs> it's just there's been a lot of communication. Uh, Intuit released their earnings. Zero released their earnings like we talked about last week. Yep. But I saw a scathing article about why zero investors should just forget the US market. That is interesting. I would love to hear that. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, the article about um, people don't want to move to rural areas because the internet's too slow. So this was one of the factors when I decided where to go when I left LA, I actually had to check the internet in all the neighborhoods that I wanted to move to, like in the cities and the neighborhoods, because like, it's so critical. Actually, I probably prioritized that before the quality of the public school. Well, that's because your kid might have to stay at home and do right, school right, learning. Right. <laughs> so but important. Even if the schools weren't shut down at the time, you know, so that's that's really interesting. Well, I guess that goes with the remote work stuff. So QuickBooks Connect happened virtually this week. That happened. Oh, yes. And, and then some app news and tech news for sure. Cool. So David, I'm gonna let you spin the wheel of news this week. Again, we've got PPP, remote work, marketing for accounting practices, app news, IRS. Do you wanna spin the wheel? All right, let's do it. Spin it. And it looks like it has landed on remote work. So let's start with that. 
So there's a survey. So this was on Small Business Trends, which I think is uh, American Express's blog. And there was a survey by a company called Satellite Internet. Basically, 54% of Americans now re- require internet at home to work for home. And the report also indicates that employers are saving up to $11,000 annually for each employee that works from home. Wow. At least half the time. So that's like all the stuff they used to have to pay in terms of overhead. Yeah, because if you think about an, uh, an office, the desk at an office and the cost to maintain that is probably pretty, fairly high per, per head. 29% of the respondents are saying their current internet connection, the one you have right now, has difficulty supporting work for home or online learning. What percentage was that? That seemed really 29%, high. 29%, a third. So they're struggling to work remotely because of their internet. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm struggling, but every day at 2.30 in the afternoon in my neighborhood, everything conks. It just conks and then it all goes to hell for about two hours and then things get back on track. That's so weird. I'm not living rural here. Yeah, you're in, like the internet needs to work bad. You're better. in two, you're in Tucson. That's a decent sized city, and you had a theory. I think that people are turning on the Netflix at two thirty and clocking out, even though yeah, yeah, people are early exiting yeah. their work and then <laughs> firing up the Netflix and they prioritize the packets. So you're not alone. You know, you said the internet speed determined where you were going to move. Yeah, it was one of my must haves. Right, sixty seven percent said that that was a factor that did that affected their decision to move to a rural area. Like that they didn't move there because of the internet? Yeah. 36 said they did not because of that. And then 67 that it, it, they weighed on their decision Wow. Um, in general. So, uh, but s- small towns are losing out then. Like if you're a town and you don't have high-speed internet, people aren't going to move there. But two out of three people, if they have the chance to move from the city to get more space, they would take it. Right. If they could work from home. So, this is a barrier and I'm not sure if people are aware, like maybe our international listeners, like especially are not aware, like internet access in rural areas is it's really hard to get good high-speed internet because it doesn't make sense for these cable companies to lay the fiber out to a, a place with low density. <laughs> so like you're, you're dealing with DSL, which is run over telephone lines. Even cable internet can be hard to get. It's the infrastructure to lay it. Which yeah. makes it difficult. And now, you know, everybody, oh, 5G, 5G, 5G. But 5G is very like short distances. Right. Like short, 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 short. So who knows if 5G will actually make the difference for a lot of the rural areas. So that's a big concern. Yeah. And that's the super high speed wireless internet. But yeah, you'd have to have those towers basically everywhere. So <laughs> that's not going to happen in rural America. So then the last stat is only 20, which I was surprisingly low, but I guess I don't get reimbursed for my internet, but 28% said their their internet connection at home is reimbursed by their employer. Isn't reimbursed, yeah. No, only 20% is. Oh, interesting. So I have have a survey here from AppZen that seems to conflict a little bit with that. So AppZen is a provider of expense auditing software. This was published in Accounting Today. Uh, actually, the big takeaway from this survey is that women are less likely to feel fairly comp for work from home expenses than men. 59%, so around 60% of women feel that they're fairly reimbursed. 80% of men feel like they're fairly reimbursed. So that's interesting. Are women not getting reimbursed at the same rate as men? And then there was another interesting stat in here that only 51% of organizations have updated their expense policies as a result of COVID-19. So I'm wondering if men are just more aggressive at submitting expenses. And so they're getting reimbursed. And 
there's not really a policy around it. So you have to basically decide, am I going to try and get reimbursed for this or not? And I, you know, you, you can imagine oh, this like, goes to the whole, how men are more forward and asking for a raise. They're yeah, more forward yeah. in negotiating yeah. their salary. You're, so you're saying you're seeing that same mindset and trend happen when it comes to filing expense reports when there's no true policies. This is my theory, right? The, the survey, there, there's two bits of data from the survey and that's, that's what I'm, I'm, that's my inference. So the takeaway is like, if you haven't updated your expense policy as a result of COVID, you should probably do that because there are probably employees in your organization that want to get reimbursed for stuff, but aren't sure if they should, you know, it's an ambiguous gray area and that is never good for some people. What expenses are being reimbursed is interesting. So again, the survey by Absen also looked at what types of expenses were getting reimbursed before COVID-19 and since COVID-19 with their set of employers. So I think this data might be different than yours because yours was like a broader set. And this is just people on the, I think, Absen platform. So more tech forward companies. So before COVID-19, the biggest work from home expense that was reimbursed was internet. 40% of companies were reimbursing internet. That increased by 46%. So like it doubled, more than doubled, and now over 80% of employers are reimbursing for internet. Similarly, extra screen monitor, that went from 37% to another 41%. So, you know, we're approaching 80% there. Um, the comfortable working chair or desk, this is where it starts to get hazy, right? Do, can you submit an expense report for that new office chair that costs you like $500 or that new standing desk? 29% were reimbursing for that before. Another 30% started doing that. So we're at about, we're over half on that. And I think that's like a reasonable work from home expense. Like if I would have had like a comfortable office chair at my workstation at the office, like, shouldn't I be entitled to have the company pay for one at home? Especially when you say that they're saving so much money from me, you know, not going to work. Utilities are actually reimbursed by a surprising percentage of companies. It went from 18, another 19% doing it. So now you're at like 30 to 40% there. That's interesting. And lunches or food delivery at home are being reimbursed much more. But, you know, it's like around 30% of companies doing that. Interestingly, the the one that is the least likely to get reimbursed on this survey is childcare. Like the one thing that is really essential for you to be able to get your job done at home, which is to have your children watched, only 20% or so of businesses, even during COVID-19, are reimbursing for childcare. It seems like as an employer, being your best interest too, if you know your employees are at home, you know their kids are at home, like to supplement your employees with some sort of additional funds to occupy their children. Especially if the schools are closed, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, well, and maybe actually going back to the original headline from the survey, maybe that's why women are less likely to feel that they're fairly reimbursed. Like childcare could be one of those things, you know, and given that most expense policies are probably, you know, dreamed up by my men (laughs) who are more likely to be running these companies. I don't know. Is is, is it possible there? I, I would love to know. Dig into that. Anyway. Or maybe this is an opportunity, right, for accounts and bookkeepers, right? You have your small business owners, like give them a template, like here's a, a recommended policy of things you should communicate to your employees that you should, you can be reimbursed for. And it's like a good, here's a best practice. Like, yeah. Get them a monitor, get them a chair, get them this. Maybe you don't pay for their green screen. Maybe you don't pay for their selfie light, but you know, but you buy them a decent microphone. Here's a list of things they could go order and then you reimburse them for it. And, you know, that's a great point, David, because that was one of the first questions I would get after setting up an expense tool 
for my clients was, okay, well, now what should I expense? What should I reimburse for? Yeah, have that like ready to go and have maybe have a template policy that you can then sell as part of the services. Not only will I set you up on this expense reporting solution for your business, but I will give you the policy that you've never really had. Or maybe we'll like update it, something like that. The opposite is instead of having a policy, there's so many services now where you can almost have office in a box. And you're like, as soon as we're going to send you a monitor, a chair, a desk, boom, 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 and you just send it to them. And then there's no expense reimbursements going on whatsoever. And it just shows up. All right. What do we want to do next? What's on our wheel? Do you want to touch on this PPP, IRS, Mnuchin, AICPA? I feel like there's so many articles that are all crisscrossed. Yes, like, sure. So, so what was the one that was confusing to you? All right. So, I guess there's three things here, right? So, one of the announcements is the taxability. Right. So, the IRS said, no, you cannot deduct the expenses associated with that forgiven PPP loan. And this was something that they've been under pressure to change, but they have doubled down on that not going to let you deduct it. So then, you know, Congress is upset about that. The top Republican and the top Democrat on the um, Senate Finance Committee have criticized the IRS for that guidance. But at the same time, like if they wanted the IRS to change it, they could just pass a law <laughs> to make it deductible. It's like, why, why don't they just do that, right? And then the reason the IRS clarified this, this guidance is because they really want people to file their forgiveness applications. Yeah, I guess because you need to file the forgiveness application to get forgiven this year. I, I don't, I haven't really thought about this. So like if you, if the loan is non-taxable, I mean, it's, it's a loan, so it's not, it's not income anyway until it's forgiven. And then when it's forgiven, it's not taxable. So basically the problem is that people this year are going to not be able to deduct the expenses, even though they might not get the forgiveness until what next year. And what if you what if you don't get the forgiveness? Yeah, then yeah. And now you already filed your taxes and you didn't claim these expenses that you've been employed. Yeah, it, it's it's overly complicated when the easier option is just just give everybody the benefit of the doubt and let them claim the expenses. Right. So hopefully, uh-huh. but there's a rush. The IRS and the Treasury, like this is an article from uh, Accounting Today. The IRS and Treasury are encouraging businesses to file forgiveness as soon as possible. Like there's this rush to to twist everybody's arms to get it filed. Yeah. I mean, probably because, you know, it's going to take them forever to actually process these forgiveness applications. Well, there was an AICPA roundtable this week, and I saw somebody uh, tweet one of the stats from it. Only 5% of small businesses have turned in their forgiveness application. (laughs) Well, because it makes sense to wait, right? Everyone's waiting to see if the whole process changes or they do blanket forgiveness. Like, why would I apply if I think there's a chance that I may never have to apply because they'll do blanket forgiveness? And the money's gone, right? So the banks can't go withdraw the money back. You've already paid it out to your employees. So I feel like small businesses in a way are, it's the most control they've had over big banks and the IRS in a long time. It's a game of chicken we're playing here. Yeah. Political chicken. Meanwhile, we've got the PPP program, Paycheck Protection Program going on. And there was that PPP loan necessity questionnaire that went out from the SBA a while back. And we talked about like two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one where it's like this, I think it's like a nine page form that you have to send back to your bank within 10 days. It has all sorts of questions about your business that were never part of the original application that the AICPA is saying are like irrelevant or in the wrong time period or reference periods that you had no idea what was going to happen when you took the loan. And now they want to know how you did afterwards. So it's like, we're changing the, the rules. It feels like 
the necessity rules are changing after the fact. And it, it's, it's, it's such a big deal, this whole PPP program that, you know, like the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive on their podcast, which is just excellent. And I, I'll put the link in the show notes. I hope everyone goes and, and checks it out about the effectiveness of the PPP program. And then now this whole necessity <laughs> questionnaire, because as we have discussed at length, the original criteria for loan necessity, basically every business in the country could qualify. You could all say, everyone, everyone could easily say economic uncertainty makes it necessary that I take this loan because everything was so uncertain. Let's say you were, uh, your business was, and this was an example in the podcast, a package delivery service that worked with Amazon. You've probably done great in the last few months, right? Because Amazon's business has just exploded. But nobody knew that was going to happen when the pandemic started. It could have caused your entire driver base to get sick. And then you couldn't deliver packages and then you're, you know, you don't have any money. Like nobody knew what was going to happen. So the ASDPA has like strongly questioned the need. It's kind of funny. They're, they're questioning the necessity of the loan necessity questionnaires. Well, not just them, 82 other organizations all wrote a pair of letters to Mnuchin, the SBA, to congressional leaders, and really just, they want, they want the use of this questionnaire suspended. Well, it's, t- I think it's totally unfair. And here's a quote from Ericus Gerson, president and CEO of CPA.com, the ASCPA's business subsidiary. He said, quote, we strongly believe that the vast majority of small businesses needed their PPP loan to stay in business and retain employees, and many still need additional financial support. These ongoing changes and new requirements could impact future business decisions on applying for additional relief. So the argument is that now you're really scaring people, and when they eventually do, hopefully, more stimulus that people will be even more reluctant to apply because they're now they're going to be afraid that the rules will change on them. One of the themes of the letter was that in a weird way that there's this hunt to punish companies that somehow either grew or remained profitable or survived the pandemic. Right. Because if you didn't survive the pandemic, like nobody's going after you. But the, right, but the ones that did are the ones that are having all the more headache, it's, which it's just, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a upside down logic. Right. Here. Yeah. If the, if the program served its purpose, then you should have done ideally succeeded and grown during the pandemic. That would be a good case. But these are the companies that are probably going to get punished or are going to get questioned the most. Now, there is one thing that I do disagree with in that quote from CPA.com which is that the vast majority of small businesses needed their PPP loan to stay in business. Now, this is a separate issue. For, you know, To me, the whole program was like poorly designed when it comes to the necessity question, and that's why everyone could apply and get it. And so that's also why, as you and I have discussed, and you, you mentioned this on the last show, I think, that the program really wasn't that efficient. There was that Wall Street Journal story that in- Oh, yeah, about basically it's a $230,000 was spent for every job, quote unquote, saved. $224,000 per job supported. So the program, this is according to researchers at MIT, in July, they compared payroll data at PPP eligible companies to ineligible ones, and they were able to see the change in employment. So big picture, PPP boosted employment by 2.3 million jobs. Well, that's great, right? Well, but it cost us hundreds of billions of dollars. So, So it cost about $224,000 $224,000 per job supported. And then the, that raises the question, well, okay, wh- why didn't we just you know pay people unemployment instead of 
doing this complicated program that now has this forgiveness process where we also had to pay billions of dollars to banks. Like it's just, it's just like the worst way to get money into the economy. So do you think like a lot of this, this um, necessity questionnaire, a lot of this in this push, like questioning who got the loan, like this is just all smokescreen to avoid the real conversations of was, was this effective? Yeah, it's finger pointing. That's what it is, David, you nailed it. It's the SBA trying to get out of, and, and treasury trying to get out of getting blamed for the all this money going to businesses that didn't really need it. And I, I want to close out with this quote here before we move on to another section. David Autor, an MIT economics professor and one of the study's authors said, quote, it seems that a lot of that cash went to businesses that would have otherwise maintained relatively similar employment levels. You know, the PPP makes me want to become a libertarian. I got to tell you, <laughs> you know what? I, 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 I'm in favor of the Fed setting up a bank account that uh, every American can access via the post office and just injecting money into that when there's an economic downturn. That would be 10 times more efficient. But I don't think that'll work because Steve Mnuchin, he said on Thursday that they're going to end the lending programs at the Federal Reserve on December 31st. And he basically expects the Federal Reserve to like return that money and quit lending it out, which basically cuts the Federal Reserve, you know, from injecting money into the economy. So even if you got your little bank account at the post office or whatever you you're dreaming here of, Blake. Yeah, those are the programs for like larger businesses, right? I, I haven't even been following the ones the Fed has been running. It's like these lines of credit essentially, right? For big businesses. Yeah, I think I saw a Carnival cruise ship is taking Millions and millions and millions, and you know, yeah. with unsecured loans from these things, yeah, they're just able to dip in and pull it straight out at, at a decent rate. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know what's going on with that. That's beyond my pay grade, but like the whole thing's just a mess. But you know, let's talk about something more positive. How about that? How about we talk about the IRS? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. We already kind of did right uh, about the penalty relief. Um, I got a few more stories here. The IRS is planning a 50% ramp up in small business audits next year. This is a headline that caught my attention in accounting today. That could be worrying, right? But then you you go down to the bottom of the article and you know how a 50% increase can seem a lot, but then if you start at a low base, it's really not that much. Well, that's the situation here. The IRS, I, I can't even believe this is right. I feel like zeros are missing here. The IRS audited only 140 partnership returns of the more than 4 million returns filed in 2018. Is that, is that insane? They audited, 4 million partnership returns were filed in 2018 and they audited only 140 of them. So like if they double it, they're going to do 280. That's still 0.00008%. Now, what about S corporations? They only audited 397 returns. So that's 0.01% of all filed in 2018. And that's according to the IRS agency data. This is nuts. Looks like maybe they just shifted resources because the IRS is now investigating fewer tax preparers. So tax professionals, uh, the audits on tax professionals, the criminal prosecutions, people that are sentenced is declining from 2018 to 2019 to 2020. I saw that too. And I think the numbers are also in like the low hundreds. At the peak in 2018, the investigations was only 224. And that was the peak of any of the numbers in these graphs. So that's just an investigation initiated. Right. Like did, did they actually, you know, achieve anything with those? Now, you know, I'm not blaming the IRS for this, actually. Like, and a lot of people are like mad at the IRS for being way behind. I, I saw a chatter on Twitter about how 
like the IRS is sending out all these notices, lien notices and stuff, but they still have a backlog of millions of pieces of mail. So they're basically sending out penalties and they're, they're hitting people with penalties for returns that have actually been filed, just not processed because the IRS hasn't opened them yet. And so the ASCPA has also been saying to the IRS through a letter, hey, you know, stop doing this. Stop sending people these penalties. And, you know, they're not getting any love back in return. But I don't blame the IRS because the IRS is just like, seems to me, woefully underfunded. So you want to talk about like, the proper use of resources and and government money, the PPP program, big, terrible disaster, in my opinion, in terms of like efficiency, but then also like underfunding the IRS is a bad idea. Well, I, I keep talking about that. Like, if it was if we were running this as a business, you'd you'd invest more in the IRS because that's your revenue. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's just nuts, and and it's a nightmare for tax professionals because you know you've got all these clients that are now getting all these notices for work that you've done, and the IRS hasn't processed it, and you can't get through to them because they don't have the priority helpline for COVID issues that the ASCPA says they should have. And well, why don't they have it? Because they don't have any money to staff these things. Yeah. So you're probably going to see a natural, because they're so far behind that maybe there isn't actually a trend that it's truly down. It's just, they're so far behind. They haven't processed enough 2020 stuff to have the number fall into the normal range. And 2021 will probably be down as well. Cause they, if they haven't opened the envelope and looked at the return, how are they going to put it in a pile of possibly investigate for an audit? Right. So they're going to have to cut that. So don't worry about your audits of S corps and partnership returns. If these numbers are right, I just can't even believe that it's that low. It's kind of incredible. But I mean, I guess they have more years. So 2018, right? They they have like seven years or whatever to audit. I, I mean, I, I could be completely wrong about that. I think it's seven years. So maybe the idea is they'll catch up, but I don't see how they ever catch up. Now, is there is there any possibility for, when speaking of tax preparers, because of e-file systems and um, the electronic movement of data, is there a chance that there's just less fraud happening? Are you kidding? And like right now, people are just <laughs> <laughs> like, like I get like like from a professional preparer standpoint, right? Like I get a small business owner, separate, not using a professional preparer, right? Doing some sort of fraudulent thing, and the preparer doesn't even know. But like the preparers themselves, like, are we trending towards being more honest? Is it? It's just happening more naturally. I'm just trying to. I'm wondering if there's another reason that these are declining, or is it just flat out they're too busy? But we don't know because we don't have the data. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Thomson Reuters. Do you know the difference between infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, or software as a service? What about shared cloud versus dedicated cloud? Hosted software versus web-based software? There's a lot more to learn about the cloud than many of us would like to admit. Good thing that Thomson Reuters has published a new white paper answering all our questions about cloud accounting. The paper addresses common myths about cloud accounting, lays out the cloud's benefit on audit, tax, and firm management, defines all the terms you'll encounter on your firm's journey to the cloud, and explains how cloud accounting will affect the future of your firm. To download Thomson Reuters' white paper on understanding the benefits of cloud accounting, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash trcloud. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-R-C-L-O-U-D. Thomson Reuters delivers the world's most innovative tax and accounting solutions. Uh, what do we want to hit on next? P- practice management or app news? Let's jump into practice management. Okay. So what are the top challenges facing accounting firms, you know, other than like the end of the world? Staffing? 
as it always seems to have been, is still a top concern of firms, and it's up. According to a survey by CPA Trendlines, 33.6% of firms, a full third of firms cite staffing as a top concern this year, and that's up from 29% in 2019. When it comes to technology challenges, security took over the top spot compared to last year, and that jumped. That's like 28% up from 19%. And so, what does that mean? Well, it's hard to hire people in a remote work environment. It was always hard to hire accountants. And now, security is a top issue because everyone's working from home. Uh, What about client portals and technology and whatnot? That has jumped a lot. 89% of respondents said they use a web portal to share files or documents with clients, and that's up from 52% in the initial survey five years ago. So in five years, they've gone from about half to almost 90% of firms using web portals to share files or documents. So that's a good good thing, right? The security concern has actually led to tech that enables people to not use email for this kind of stuff. Surprisingly, the use of social media has dropped 5% year over year. 27% of firms do not use social media at all to communicate with clients, recruits, and prospects. And I find that to be a little bit shocking because it's not that expensive or difficult to at least have a social media presence and do a little bit of posting so that you're online. So uh, that is some, uh, some data from a recent survey. So I had something to transition us into app news if you have nothing else from practice news. There's a survey of PayPal executives of their hourly and entry-level employees. And essentially, it was very eye-opening. The workers at some of their offices said that after they take out their taxes and living expenses, they only have 4% of their paycheck remaining. I'm thinking, you know, with uh, firms and their staff, like, do you have any insights to your staff? Like, are they living paycheck to paycheck? Do they need easier access to funds? And what's this has led, led to? So, PayPal, big, huge tech company, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have an announcement. They're giving employees early access to paychecks through Evens app. So, Evens one of those players that lets you uh, get your paycheck early. So, even like right? so E-V-E-N? E-V-E-N? Yes, E-V-E-N. So, essentially, you clock in, you work for, you work an eight-hour shift, you could cash out some of your paycheck, kind of that type of a model. And so PayPal is offering that to their own employees. This is a big, huge tech giant company. And they're having, they're discovering that their employees are still are living payday to payday and need these. In a way, these are kind of like a payday loan in a way, right? Mm -hmm. You're just getting paid instantly for that day of work. And so this is kind of this, I was kind of shocked because I thought it was like, oh, PayPal is integrating this app for PayPal customers, right? It would be a way to get your money put into your PayPal account, something like that. But no, it's the PayPal employees that are getting this. Mm. Um, and I think we've talked about there's other services like Walmart's doing this for their employees. So so it's around a lot of companies are offering this, but I, I wonder if there's something firms need, need to think about for their, for their employees. So QuickBooks Connect was this week, but virtually, which I didn't attend. I don't know. Were you, were you in on any of that? I, I did attend. It, uh, it was interesting because some of it was recorded sessions. So a lot of the keynotes looked appear to be recorded. It's a recording. It's a VP standing from a green screen, virtual background. Um, and they keep replaying them. I think you can actually go back and replay them on YouTube and, and watch these videos. I think there's just a couple highlights. There's nothing, there's no major bomb drops of like, oh my God, Intuit's doing this. Um, so I did make a couple notes of things I, I thought were interesting. Yeah, let's hear them. So like at, like features or what? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things I noticed were or the theme is a lot of things that used to be separate apps are kind of just getting built in. 
to QuickBooks now. So importing from Amazon. There used to be, there's apps out there that do this. You connect your Amazon account, all the purchases you made from Amazon, you click on it, it sends that purchase over to QuickBooks as an expense, puts all the details in like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you bought an office chair, all the details are in there, it's in QuickBooks as an expense. That's just built into QuickBooks online now. Deeper sales tax integrations. There's all these third-party apps, right? Mm. And Intuit actually purchased a sales tax company a few years back, but that's all built in there. So there's you're starting to see functionality that was done by third-party apps just built in, right? Uh, bank statement fetching. They now fetched uh, 3,800 different banks. And just to check it, I went into mine and, oh yeah, I could fetch my bank statements right inside of the product. I don't have to use a third-party product to get my bank statements. And not only that, it keeps track of the bank statements I've reconciled and not reconciled, which I thought was kind of cool. The one, the one thing I think that really looks amazing is the tags. Tags. So the, What's that? So tags. So just like, you know, in other software packages you might use, or I use in our, our newsreader. So I get an article, I can tag it for this episode. I could tag it IRS. I could tag it PPP. Mm-hmm. I could have a tag called Discuss with Blake. Who knows, right? It's a very free form way of organizing your data. So they're putting tags on transactions into QuickBooks Online. Hmm. So you're kind of wide open. You could do classes, locations, you could whatever you need to do. You could but but I think it gets interesting is workflows. If that becomes available in the API and now you can connect Zapier to these tags, you could totally trigger other things in your organization based on that tag. Right, based on like a specific transaction coming through that's tagged a certain way. That's interesting. Yeah, like like show to management or yeah. you have a tag called management review and all those transactions get bucketed, rounded up and pushed off somewhere. So I think some of that, they have streamlined estimates. Um, getting paid, they're going to let people text a link to get paid. So instead of you just emailing out an invoice to your small business owners, they now could get, you could send them a text mm-hmm. and get paid back. Obviously, they pushed their new acquisition, um, QB Commerce, big push for that. Mm-hmm. The Trade Gecko acquisition, right? QB Advanced has batch transactions, and this was kind of cool. So it's like a table. So you can enter in batch transactions and quickly create a bunch of transactions. But what's really cool is you can like, let's say you have that data already in Excel. You just hi- you just do a copy paste from Excel or, a t- or another spreadsheet if you have the table data and just paste it straight in. Uh, that's great. So much better than having to do like a CSV import export. Yep. You just paste it in and, and you do your do debits and credits, boom, and you, you send it in completely. Awesome. Um, more approvals to workflows inside of QBO, QuickBooks Online Advanced, um, customized dashboards, things like that. The one that I think got the most wows along the way was the month-end review for accountants in the QB QuickBooks Online Accountant Edition. So essentially, the whole end-to-end review process for a client is just built onto one screen. So your uncategorized transactions, um, your dashboard of things to de- uh, to talk to that client about the reconciliation. It's basically think of it as just one complete screen for you to do all that workflow. And QuickBooks is getting that data from all the different places you'd have to gather up to do a month-end close for a client onto one screen. You just start at the top and you just work your way down. Now, is this pre-configured or can I customize this? Because that was always my problem with this sort of annual check-in workflow or monthly one when it was in QuickBooks Desktop, right, was that it would give me this checklist, but I, I couldn't like customize it. That I'm not sure on. Yeah. And it is beyond a checklist. It actually pulls surfaces, in, surfaces the, tra- the data, the transactions that you need to handle and take care of. That's cool. And manage that workflow. Well, you know, like there's some stuff you're always going to have to do, right? Like reconcile the accounts. And so if you could see in all in one place, you know, all the accounts and have they been reconciled and uncategorized, all that good stuff. And just a quick correction, it's actually 2,800 banks that are uh, automatically downloading statements, not, not 3,800. Uh, we had an update from QuickBooks Live this month. You know, that is still alive. The, the QuickBooks built-in bookkeeping 
this was something that we, you know, really was a big story for us. What last year? It was the biggest story of 2019 easily yeah. by far. And then of course, you know, they're just sort of like launching it and they're getting going and then the pandemic hits and all of that concern about bookkeeping getting automated and taken over by tech companies kind of just went away because those kind of services that offer a very limited bookkeeping service couldn't possibly adapt to what businesses actually needed. They needed help filling out PPP applications. Well, QuickBooks Live is not going to do that for you. Uh, But it's still around. And there was an update on the Firm of the Future blog about what's new. So the new thing with QuickBooks Live is that they are debuting a cleanup service. For $500, customers, this is going to be advertised to QuickBooks customers in the app. For $500, they can get a 30-day service where within 30 days, the QuickBooks Live team, a special team in, in QuickBooks Live that just does cleanup will look at your data and work with you to get everything caught up and reconciled. And this is going to actually be required as your first month of QuickBooks Live. So if you sign up for the ongoing, you got to pay that $500. And then afterward, you start paying whatever the monthly subscription is, which is either going to be $200, $400, or $600 per month, depending on the uh, monthly expenses you have. And this makes sense because just out in the same way accounting firms discovered, you go to take on a new client and they have a mess and like, oh, I didn't quote them a cleanup and now I just got to eat it and I got to fix their books along the way and I'm going to charge them on charge each month. And a lot of people eventually discovered, hey, I'm always going to do a a review or a cleanup first before I engage a client on a monthly contract. QuickBooks is doing the exact same model that everybody else has had to do. Correct. I have another QuickBooks update. More, okay. Intuit has introduced HubSpot for QuickBooks. I think I may have mentioned this on a previous episode, but now we have more detail. Uh, There's a landing page set up on HubSpot.com, HubSpot for QuickBooks. You can just search for that to find it if you're interested. Basically, if if you don't know HubSpot, you really should because it's kind of the number one CRM plus marketing automation platform for small and medium-sized businesses. I use it at Giraffe. I used it for my own firm when I had my firm. Uh, Pretty amazing software. It's like one of my favorite apps in the world that I use every day. And they now have an integration with QuickBooks and it was built by, I guess, HubSpot and Intuit working together. So not a third-party integration anymore. The thing is, it's only available for QuickBooks Advance. So this is that strategy of making premium integrations available. You got to upgrade to QuickBooks Online Advanced to get that. Um, So, you know, what does it actually do? Yeah, that was my question because I feel like this is a very marketing-driven announcement and I I just basically it'll take an invoice from draft to a repro- approval. Like, I'm not fully sure. Like it's not really clear what the workflow is. <laughs> like is it just a this just feels like a very strong marketing partnership first. Yeah. And then the product's just there to pretend they have a product integration. It's not very clear. So they didn't like they didn't actually talk about what it actually does in the press release. And you have to dig through into the support article to find it, but I did find it. So here's what it does. I'll tell you. So from within a HubSpot deal record, you can create a QuickBooks invoice directly inside of HubSpot. So that's really cool because if you have salespeople who need to create invoices, now you don't have to have them like email accounting or you don't have like to, to do that. They can actually do it. 
So, so you- taking a step back, so HubSpot is kind of like, I think, uh, Infusionsoft, or it's called KeepNow, or even Salesforce. It's a way for me to manage my, yeah, yeah. my customer. It's, it's almost like a CRM. It and, is a CRM. And some of those yeah. products have built-in invoicing. I can bill my customers. They can pay me right through the app itself and the interface of that. HubSpot has not had its own invoicing functionality. And so Correct. This, so now, instead of HubSpot building their own invoicing functionality from scratch, essentially they're offering it, serving up a QuickBooks invoicing feature inside of the product. Yeah, they have like a quote feature. Okay. And, a, and people can e-sign a quote that's available. But yeah, actually creating the invoice in, in an account, they don't have accounting, right? They don't do that. Got it. So, so this is pretty cool. Uh, you can also see the status of the invoice on the deal record and share the new invoice with your sales manager, accounting team, or whoever with a conveniently provided URL. So you can actually have visibility in the deal as to whether or not that invoice has been paid, which is really important because you don't want to start providing services until you get paid. Like that's a best practice generally. So then you can also add existing QuickBooks online invoices and contacts to HubSpot. So you can sync those uh, contacts. So you're syncing on QuickBooks online contacts into HubSpot, which is great. Uh, So like if you have an existing customer base and you've been keeping track of that, like using sort of the QuickBooks contacts as your CRM, now you can actually import that into your new marketing CRM. Uh, And then you can set up workflows using invoice deal properties. So you could, for example, create a workflow that sends a follow-up email to customers who have not paid their invoice by the due date. And you're not using the QuickBooks templates to do that, right? Which is limited. You're using your HubSpot templates. So now those follow-up emails have your branding and maybe they have whatever else you want. You can have like very detailed fields. Like this is a CRM. This is a marketing tool. You could build a workflow that sends a celebratory Slack message to your team every time you collect a payment. That's cool. A great way to also notify people, hey, time to kick off that implementation or to kick off that new customer or whatever. And then you can also run reports in HubSpot using the new invoice deal properties. So you can basically join your invoice data with all your other data in your CRM. And you can run reports, cross-object reports, all that kind of stuff um, so that you're using your HubSpot dashboard to also show you know, what is my invoice status? You know, what is my customer value? Uh, All this stuff that your sales reps, you know, the people on the front lines really need to be able to see and like, they don't have to now go to accounting to ask for that. So I think it's really cool. Like, man, you know, if I were getting back into business with this new integration uh, with a practice, I would like do both. I would implement HubSpot and QuickBooks for customers and like link them up and do all sorts of cool reporting stuff for them. Interesting. Like, I, I don't get that excited about integrations these days. Like, but this like looks like a really cool one. <laughs> All right. So yeah, it, 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 glad you it, you were able to find more details about that because on the surface, everything I read, I was just like, okay, this doesn't sound like it does much. And it looks like the difference is it works with any of the um, just on the main landing page. There's an FAQ, so it, it works for any HubSpot version you have, starter, professional, enterprise, or free, and it integrates with any QuickBooks Online Simple Start Essentials Plus and Advanced. But the the one that connects to QuickBooks Online Advanced is a little bit more enhanced. It, it's it's a, it's a, a oh, it does work with all of them. Yeah. Okay. I was confused. I thought it only worked with QuickBooks Online Advanced. Yeah, so they it works with all, but if you want these kind of additional automated flows, they only work with QuickBooks Online Advanced. Got it. Which is interesting because I think from a, a developer standpoint, at some level, the APIs for all QuickBooks are the same, but you can identify which QuickBooks you're working with. And so now, as I'm just thinking as HubSpot, as a third-party developer, they have to really pay attention to how somebody's connecting and then have different code paths for those those QuickBooks users, which from a developer standpoint is a lot of extra work. Yeah. 
So Intuit also this week introduced their earnings. They had their earnings call. Um, nothing really uh, surprising here. Revenues for uh, their online ecosystem grew 28%. QuickBooks Online accounting revenues were up 28%. All their online services, so their payroll, payments, time tracking, that grew up another 17%. Even QuickBooks desktop ecosystem revenues grew another 3% this year. Wow. Even in the light of the pandemic and all the people working <laughs> from home and all everybody going remotely, desktop revenue still increased. Management's optimistic about how the growth of TurboTax Live and QuickBooks Live is going to help them acquire new customers. And it didn't hit me until this morning. We've been talking about like, oh, the banks are coming out into it. Square's coming out into it. Everybody's coming out into it. And because they're getting in front of the customer earlier, like at the point of creating a bank account, right? Or at the point of receiving a payment. And, you know, how is Intuit supposed to get, get ahead of that? And the way they're going to do it is offering a service that none of the other competitors are doing. Like if you go to the, one of these newfound banks that have an, a general ledger, you're not going to get somebody to actually help you run your business. You're not going to get a person. You're not going to get help with your bookkeeping. Nope. And this is, and, and I think, and we, we, when we talked about Coach Live early on, they had numbers from TurboTax Live, the customer satisfaction and the desire, the, the demand on the, the small business side is huge for something like QuickBooks Live. And maybe this is a big bet into its making. And this is what why the banks, by the time they realize that they need to add people to these services, it's going to be too late. They're not going to, they're going to discover, oh, I guess we didn't really win this game. Yeah. With, with Square or Stripe, you, you can't even get anyone on the phone. They don't even have numbers you can call. Another thing to add to that is just that Intuit, we have to remember that their most profitable products are far up market from what these challenger banks and what the payment processors are offering. And Intuit's strategy for years and years and years has always been get people in at a low price point, paying a hundred and something bucks for QuickBooks, and then sell them additional services. And you turn that customer that was maybe a few hundred bucks for a license into somebody subscribing to QuickBooks payroll and merchant services and you know, th- that's what they've always done, right? And then you turn them into a, a customer that's really paying you thousands of dollars, $1,000 a month or something, right? 10 times as much. And so this is like another way to do that. It makes it like a sticky ongoing relationship. You're selling them more. Like that's what QuickBooks Live is, right? It increases their QuickBooks revenue dramatically. It takes a subscription that might be 50 bucks a month and could make it 500. Yeah. And in the meantime, all these entry-level solo gig focused bank apps, et cetera, they're trying to get people to pay $9 a month for an app. It's the same in software as it is in the accounting world where you don't really want to be, if you want to be a successful business and make good profit like into it, you don't want to be down at the bottom with the you know millions of people who you can't even convince them to pay $5 a month for something. Like they, These are the people that you know, and look, we all do this where we look at an app and we're like, uh, do I really want to pay $2 from the app store for this? But psychologically, um, it's hard to get people to spend money on stuff at a certain segment of the market. But then as soon as people have needs where they need advice or they they're, they have a real business that's really operating and has employees, like then they're v- much less price sensitive. They're just like, I don't have time. I need you to solve my problem. I will happily pay you $2,000 for a tax return. <laughs> Right, as opposed to the two hundred you might be lucky to get from a ten forty in many situations. Absolutely, it's all about it's all about finding that segment of the market that like really needs what you've got. And on a related note, Zero released their numbers last week. Brooke Mitchell from the Australian Financial Review he wrote an article 
um, about basically it's titled why zero investors should forget the US market. And he pretty much says it's done for zero in the US. So zero announced that the numbers are not good, right? You said last week that it's like a quarter million subscribers. About a quarter million. So they added 10,000 subscribers between March and September. And at that rate, it will take them 152 years to catch up to what Zero had a year, or sorry, what Intuit had a year ago. And even right. if they were to somehow make it 40,000, like instead of 10,000, it still would take 76 more years. So it's just, it's game over. Like they, they, Zero has lost the US market. They, they, they can never catch. Um, but they also said a little bit deeper in here. Um, so a senior an- analyst at Ross Barrows, he said that it's not a winner's take all market. I've always kind of had that point of view. If you think about, if you think about, QuickBits itself, and you think about into it, and just North America going back 15, 20 years ago, whatever you want to say, right? There was about, I like to use 26 million small businesses because that's a marathon. There's about 26 small, million small businesses in North America, and to it wasn't able to get all of them. They were only able to successfully convince people. 5 million to start using QuickBooks desktop. So many people mm, are still using yeah. pens, papers, pens, et cetera, right? But then if you think about the current world, an, an addressable market for cloud accounting software, right? And you're, you're, so you're talking, you have your Australia, your Canada, US, UK, arguably possibly India, right? Uh, possibly Brazil. You're looking at more of like a $54 million addressable market. I'm sorry, 54 million small businesses in an addressable market. So that's an ultra marathon. So let's say history repeats itself. QuickBooks wins. QuickBooks gets 85, 90% market share again, and zeros in second place. That second place of that 54, the ultra marathon is makes them bigger than QuickBooks desktop ever was in its heyday. Like zero still wins by losing. Even if they massively lose, they still win. So let's say globally, zero gets a third of the market share. I mean, zero is a, a gigantic, well, and, huge company then. And, and they're doing great globally. Yes, they are. Right? Like that's, that's no question. And they're probably doing better than Intuit. Globally, because of the way they handle multi-currency and stuff like that. And then there was some questioning about whether or not Zero is actually a platform. Um, because uh, a lot of the way the investors are thinking about platforms is you have that network effect, right? And if you think about Intuit, right, you have, you know, payroll and payroll customers can become TurboTax customers and TurboTax customers that have businesses can become QuickBooks customers. And, or you see this a lot with payments, right? Um, I pay you through Venmo, then you pay somebody else through Venmo, and it really explodes. And so they don't feel like Zero has a strong network effect platform. So even well, though not they in have, the US. yeah, even though they have apps that connect to it and they can move data yeah. back and forth, but they don't have a customer base that really lends itself to getting more customers on the platform. Yeah, and then so they so that's a little bit of a question as well. But in general, I, I still think, like in the grand scheme of the game, even if they lose, they they win. Like it's pretty massive. It's true. Yeah. That's the thing to, to recognize is it's not, it's not heads up zero into it. It's, it's like all of these developers are trying to eat the world of spreadsheets and pen and paper. Yep. That's what they're up against. And it's green field. Well, David, we got one review. We should probably read that before we go, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is from B Stoltzfus via Apple podcasts, five stars. Fantastic. I love listening to the podcast. It has been extremely beneficial in helping to keep up with all the changes in legislation surrounding the pandemic relief. Also find the information useful when looking at different systems to help automate and make our accounting process more efficient. Thank you so much for that review. We really appreciate it. And if our listeners would like to leave their own review, David, where is the best place for them to do that? So if you're an Apple person, just open up your Apple podcast app, leave a review there. If you're Android and you're using many different podcast players that are available, you can go to podchaser.com 
and find us there. And you can leave a review on Podchaser and that actually will start showing up in other apps now. Yeah, we also have a voicemail number you can call and leave us a message. It's 202-695-1040, 202-695-1040. That cuts off after a few minutes, so uh, keep it short. And we'll listen and likely even play it on the air. And if people want to get in touch with you, David, where should they do that? I'm just at David Leary on all the socials. Uh, if you send me a message on LinkedIn, please just say I'm not a bot. So I know you're not a spammer. And I've really been enjoying connecting with some of our new listeners or longtime listeners this week on LinkedIn. So uh, yeah, send me a message. Let me know you're a listener and you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. Anything else before we go? I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. There's just a small uh, True Commerce acquired B2B gateway. So they're both EDI players, but I'm actually happy this happened because in 10 years of my career at Intuit, I would always confuse these two companies. <laughs> I'm glad they're merging. You can cut No this. more confusion. Yeah. Well, enjoy Thanksgiving, David. Uh, enjoy your holiday and I'll see you here next week. You as well. Time for the classifieds. I want to tell you about a new workflow solution called Bakotech. Bakotech is a cloud solution that puts CPAs in the middle of their clients' data. Bakotech gathers clients' data and delivers it to CPAs in real time through one login, enabling CPAs to make adjustments to tax returns and client accounting issues as they happen, not at for year end. Bakotech helps CPAs provide their clients with the proactive services they need and increases the firm's efficiency and leads to working less overtime and busy season. To learn more about Baco Tech, head over to bacotech.com. Looking to radically increase productivity as a cloud accountant? Introducing Client Hub's Frictionless Workflow, a unique combination of internal workflow seamlessly blended with client tasks and communications. See how a frictionless experience across your team and your clients will save you hours of time. Get started today with a free trial at clienthub.app. Enter promo code CAP25 for 25% off your first three months. ClientHub, truly frictionless workflow. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info, and be sure to check out our special stimulus pricing of four episodes for just $100.